Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 47. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Mary Pfeiffer. She's a clinical psychologist, adjunct clinical professor at the University of Nebraska, and the author of 11 books, including four New York Times bestsellers, including Women Rowing North, Reviving Ophelia, and today's book, A Life in Light. Mary, thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here, Josh. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, sure. This book was like it was it was like a dream. It was so so fun and and just so lovely to read. Uh, you know, the podcast we go through a lot of sort of technical books, a lot of psychological books that are very interesting, but maybe not as moving, you know, or or maybe not as easily digestible. So this was like a really terrific read. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I had to whip my dictionary out because I'd learned so many words uh, while reading this. A few of them were pergola, pal- palimpsest, sacralize, oh. murmuration, and dappled. So, Oh, dappled was a new word for you. It was, yeah. That's really interesting to me. That's been a big word for me all my life. Mm. Everybody that knows me knows I love dappled leaves and dappled light. Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot um, as I spent some time outside. So what is, yeah, tell, why don't, why don't we start there? I think that's a good place to start. What is dappled light? Dappled light is light coming through. Generally, people are talking about trees when they talk about dappled light and the leaves moving in the wind so that there's a sun shadow um, interplay that makes the light uh beautiful to watch in the trees and dappled down below. And um, there's a word in Japanese, komarebi, that refers to that interplay of light in the, the leaves. And it means also a melancholic longing for a person, place, or thing. And it also um, suggests impermanence. And so that word komarebi became sort of a summary word for the whole book. Um, All of our lives are a mixture of light and shadow. All of our days are a mixture of light and shadow. There's pretty much ants at every picnic. Mm. There's something going on that um, gives us sorrow in most days and gives us joy, if we're lucky, in most days. The other thing is, of course, is as as I grow older, I'm more and more aware of how fast things change and how impermanent every experience is. And so I wanted to write about my life in terms of both the light and shadow, but also in terms of the time passing and the many different uh, people we are as we move across our lives. Yeah, and done so beautifully, if I may say. So for the dappled phenomena to take place, does it require the trees to be moving at all for there to be some wind or, or can you get the effect? I mean, for me, it does. Yeah. For me, it Uh does. I'm not sure how carefully we can parse that word beyond where we have it right now. Uh, Hmm. But when I think of, of light in the trees, I always think of a little bit of movement and, you know, Josh, this is my first memory when I was a baby I was down in the Ozarks and um, one of my aunts or my grandma carried me out in the front yard. And uh, I remember lying on a blanket and looking up at the sky 
and watching this, this beautiful scene of light and leaves. And of course, I was a baby. I didn't have any language uh, internally uh, for that. But I remember that experience. And I think that one of the reasons I chose this title of Light and Life is light has always been so vivid for me and so important for me. Interestingly enough, I've got some um, quite a few bipolar people in my family. And I read somewhere that one of the aspects of bipolar can be an unusual sensitivity to light. Now, I'm not bipolar, uh, but that sensitivity to light may be part of my my heritage. Mm. Yeah, you are quite sensitive from what I've read in your memoir um, to so many things, to light, to uh, lots of stuff that you noticed as a child I thought was really interesting. Um, so when you talk about light sensitivity, are you referring to the ability to like notice how light affects things? Or do you mean like bright too too bright of a light is uh, painful or something like that? Well, actually, what I really mean is I can't start to be in uh, dark rooms. And uh, I never, even when I was the poorest of the poor, never considered living in a basement apartment. And uh, when I walk into a hotel room, I've done a lot of speaking. I had one night where I was in more hotels than I was in my own bed. Uh, when I walk into a hotel room, the first thing I do is pull open the shades or the drapes so I can see some light. And my own house, uh, one of the reasons my husband and I bought it is it's got a lot of windows. I really, I, I really like natural light and I like to be outside in the light. And a lot of my memory is encoded around light. Um, for example, um, the first story I tell in the book is of being a little girl. Uh, my father was in the uh, army in Korea at that time in the Korean War. My mom was going to medical school and she had three young children. And usually on a Saturday night, she could get away and we could have a little recreation. And so we'd drive our car outside of Denver just to look at the stars. One night we saw uh, the light of a radio station. So we drove over to this radio station to look at the, the tower and the radio station. And there was a fountain there. It was called KOA Radio Station. And they had a little fountain out front that had a, a revolving wheel that shone uh, red, uh, green, blue, yellow light on this fountain. And uh, I remember just being captivated by that, just thinking it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And my brothers eventually got tired of it. My mother, as she often did, fell asleep in the car. But I just sat on the warm hood of that car and watched that light and thought how beautiful it was. And then even driving back into Denver to go home, I remember I had my eyes shut. I wanted to hold on to that picture of that light. Mm. So, so I use light in a literal sense in this memoir, Light and Life. But I also use it in a metaphorical sense, which is I, I'm solar powered. I think most of us are solar powered. We're heliotropic. We turn toward the sun. We naturally avoid, if we can, staying too long in darkness. And I'm not suggesting a sort of mindless positivity where we never allow ourselves to feel pain or sorrow. 
But I do think there's a sense in which we can absorb and hold our sorrow and then move on. And the way to move on is turn toward the light. And that light can be, it can be relationships, it can be the natural world, it can be work. In my case, when I was young, it was reading and swimming. I was real interested in birds. It was my grandmother who I say in the book, loved me into existence. She was a wonderful, warm person who was really the first person, I think, who ever um, made a great effort to make me feel special. Mm. And I remember an incident with her where we showed up at her house. She lived about four hours from where my parents lived. And uh, we walked in and she had a cookie jar. And I said, what kind of cookies did you bake? And she said, ginger snaps. And I said, well, that's my favorite kind. And she said, well, that's why I baked them. And I remember that being a kind of a revelation to me that someone actually plan in advance to do something to make me happy. And uh, it made me real happy. Mm. Yeah, your your memory of your childhood is so compelling, especially these experiences with light. It seems like, you know, when you were six or 10 or 12, you were so sensitive uh, to phenomena that I feel like I'm only starting to appreciate in the last few years. Um, I wonder if you feel like that's a characteristic of of writers, maybe in general, or, or how it is the case that... Um, you were able to like sort of articulate these like important phenomena at such a, at such a young age. You know, it's really interesting question. And I was a therapist, as you know, for many decades. And uh, it was always a really interesting question to me who remembers their childhood and who doesn't and, and who has vivid memories of like, for example, I'd often ask people, tell me what you know about, your birth, where you want a child and you know your birth story. Turns out very few people know, very few people know that information. Um, and uh, I'd ask people, well, do you remember anything before you started school? Some people do, but many people don't remember much about their lives until they're, they're maybe in elementary school and they'll remember. Uh, I think with me, a couple things were going on. One was I was alone so much as a child that I had a lot of time to think about my experiences in a way that children whose parents are always around or are, are have people more engaged with them when they're young are, are just busy. They, they don't have so much thinking time. Then the other thing is the people in my family when they were around were storytellers. My mother was a good storyteller. My dad was a good storyteller. So I grew up in a family that, that had a lot of uh, uh, stories and told them. So it became a part of my life, these stories about um, where we were when, when we were young and, and different things that happened. And that idea of narrative as being the way you understand the world, I experienced that really young from my parents. Mm. There's a there's a quote in the book. Um, I think it's you, you're quoting your mother when she says, uh, "Parents often gave their children what they never had, not necessarily what the children wanted or needed." Yeah, yeah, which I think is yeah. probably true. 
Well, in, in my parents' case, it was very true because um, what they both had wanted when they were children was um, was food to clothe. And my father was was homeless, some of his children. He grew up childhood. He grew up in the Ozarks. Uh, his father was in a mental hospital. His mother uh, and his sisters boarded with people and did their chores in order to have a place to live and food. But my dad, he, he just lived in barns and, and he knew a lot of people. They'd let him sleep in their barn and feed him some. But but he thought, and I, I think he felt very strongly about this, that if he had children with a house and shoes and clothes and food and a college fund, that's what children pretty much needed. And my mother also, she'd grown up um, in the Dust Bowl, Eastern Colorado during the Depression, um, never had a new pair of shoes. She was the third sister and she wore three three years old shoes after her two older sisters passed them down. And um, so I think they felt they were giving us what they didn't have, which was a middle-class life. And um, that was their idea, I think, of how to be really good parents. My mother also had books. She was very big on books for children. And I'm grateful to that. She read us stories when she was home. She's a very good mother. I don't mean to imply that she wasn't. She was just a doctor. And she was a doctor in a county where there are no other doctors. And she was she was just busy all the time. When she wasn't working, she was a present good mother. But she worked a, a great deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember one scene from the book where she's driving out somewhere, I guess, pretty rural. And you're sleeping in the backseat. And there's some ferocious dog somewhere. Oh yeah, that's a story too about giving your children what what you didn't have. And so this this ferocious dog, she drives into this this back when doctors did house calls, she drives into this farmyard and this dog, oh my gosh, it just looked like it was going for her jugular when she got out of the car. And the farmer came out and called it back and and held it by a long chain and she went in the house and told me don't get out of the car under any circumstances. So uh, she finally came back. The farmer escorts her to the car and she gets in and, and I go, man, that was a scary dog. And she said, well, the farmer's real proud of that dog. He told me when he was a child, he wanted a dog and his parents wouldn't let him have one. And so he has this dog for his children. And he's, he feels like he's a good dad because he's given him this dog, you know. So, yeah, that's a story. And I think if I'm honest, I can see things that, that I wanted my children to have I didn't have. Like, for example, I wanted my children to have an extremely present mother. Mm-hmm. And that's something I hadn't had, a present parent. And so I was a very present mother. And we had a family dinner every night. We had board games. We had bedtime stories. Um, I was up making breakfast for the children, waking them up in the morning, asking about their schoolwork, going to all their activities. And it was a big shock to me that at some point my children were kind of wanting more space. Well, I'd never had the problem of wanting more space from a parent. And I, I, when, when I realized that, I realized I'd probably been an overpresent mother to a certain extent to those kids. But um, yeah, we all give our children, I think, at least a little bit of what we wanted for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, some of this, like, 
uh, question of like child rearing and how to do it best. It, it almost makes me think that like two people is not enough. Oh yeah. I totally believe that. I, I love these stories of uh, Africa is a place where this is often true, where children call multiple people, mother and father, or everyone is an auntie and, or an uncle. And there's a great sense of community involved in child rearing. And I was lucky too, because even though my parents never lived in the same town much with, with relatives, my family was uh, very close to the aunts and uncles and the grandmothers. And so some of the things that my, my parents didn't give me, this grandmother I mentioned gave me, and, and my aunts. Uh, one of the things I did growing up in a family where it was very hard to get attention was I learned, I excelled in getting love and attention. I learned to be just the nicest, most conversational, helpful girl. And people responded to that. You know, I, I had my aunts, I think they all thought I was maybe their favorite niece. And I got a lot of attention from them and a lot of good conversation. Uh, and so that was really good for me. I sometimes have felt guilty later in my life that I was so good at getting attention. I'm not sure how my younger siblings felt about that, you know that I, I could become the favorite if I worked at it pretty easily. But for me, it was good. Did you ever ask them? You know, I've never asked them directly, but we've had, my brothers and I have spent years processing our family and our relationships to each other. And we're very close. And, and I, think what, I think what they would say is that I was definitely the good girl in the family and the parents' favorite. And so that was that was enough for the three of us to deal with the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good segue into this this question I have on page one sixty nine. You quote: "I had stopped being a golden child quite a long while ago." Um, I think this is related to your pregnancy. Well, actually, it was before that. You know, growing up, my father was very conservative. My mother was very quiet about her views. She later, I think, was much more progressive after my father died. But when when we were growing up, it was a very conservative household. Um, we went to the Methodist church. As I said, I was a very good girl, very well-behaved in high school, straight-A student and so on, and, and just really tame, a very tame girl. I never had a drink or a cigarette or did anything that by anybody's reckoning could be considered wild. But I went down to KU as part of an honors program in 1965. And the war was starting to go on. The situation all over uh, the country for young people my age was starting to change very rapidly. And it was the war and the draft. It was a civil rights movement. Uh, it was the birth control pill. A lot of things happened. And a lot of young people like me changed rapidly when they got on a college campus. I started being a part of civil rights marches in Kansas City. I started going to um, jazz clubs in Kansas City with my boyfriend and going to art films. And all of these things changed me. Uh, and I became, uh, I started smoking, I started drinking, I had a boyfriend. Um, and this, this really bothered my parents and it bothered 
It bothered him who I was keeping company with. Now, my grades were great, and I was a good daughter in the sense of staying in touch with them and being loving. But they could see I was changing, and they didn't like it. And then I went out to Berkeley. Uh, I graduated from Berkeley in 69. And it was impossible for anybody in my small town in Kansas not to know how much I'd changed. And um, I wore a headband. I wore mini skirts and beads and just looked like somebody who'd come from Berkeley when I came home. And that was very upsetting to my parents. And then it was really, it was about hmm, two years later, I became pregnant. Uh, I'd lived a year in London. I came home. I was just finishing up courses to go to medical school. And I got pregnant with a with the man who was in my medical school class. Hmm. And that was Zeke, right? My son was Zeke. Yeah. My son is Zeke. I, I didn't stay. I did not want to marry this man. Mm-hmm. But I, I was a single parent. I, I, Zeke was my son, and he was born in Kansas City. So there's a there's kind of a lovely sort of quote here, intriguing quote on page 236, where you write, I wondered, as I always do, how is it that grace descends upon us? We can't will it or manufacture it ourselves. Rather, it comes to us in the same way as a murmuration of starlings and as random as falling stars. Um, I I think I don't exactly remember what phenomena it was that you were participating in, but uh, I wonder if you think that's true. Do you think we don't have control over these moments when grace descends upon us. And maybe you could also just say what you think grace is anyway. Well, for me, there's moments um, like the the first one I experienced lying on that blanket where um, the world is just marvelously perfect and there's nothing I want to change and I'm absolutely present and at peace. Um, And I guess I would call that grace. and um, for example, I have a little story in there about being down on the the Gulf Coast of Texas with my my uh, family. And my dad was fishing and had let, allowed me to come along with him. And we were out on a pier, and uh, there was light on the water uh, from little boats. And my dad was happy. Uh, wasn't always a happy man. He was happy that night. He bought me an orange pop. And he was drinking some beer and fishing. And that moment, grace descended upon me. And I was just so perfectly at peace and happy. And I told myself, I want to remember this moment the rest of my life. And I remember everything about it. I remember the fishy smell of the water. I remember this little nubby jumper I had on. I remembered the feel of that orange pop in my hand. And uh and I remember what my dad was wearing, you know, and how he looked putting uh, bait on a hook. Um, and those kind of moments, I don't remember all of them, but I'll have them every now and then. And um, I'm more likely to have them in the natural world when I'm outdoors. In fact, I can't remember too many that were indoors. Um, sometimes I'll have them. One time I had one with my husband. It was just an ordinary evening. And I looked over at him and I just had this, this epiphany of how, how beautiful he was, how just, how much I loved him, what a kind person. And I just, it's almost like for that moment, 
I saw him in totality for the first time and just felt so much gratitude toward him. And so these moments, they've come through all my life. And sometimes it's possible, for example, one thing I do is I keep very good clack if the moon rises. And I'll be outside if at all possible during the, the approaching full moon so I can watch that moon rise. And I'll, I'll watch the sunrises every morning. I'm up for sunrise. And so obviously watching a moonrise, a sunrise, you're likely to have a moment of grace. Uh, but it doesn't have to be anything like that. In fact, there was one man I was talking to for um, another book, Women Roy North. And I asked him if he had those moments of, of just perfection and pure joy. And he said, yeah, he said, it used to be I had to travel and be on a mountaintop. Or he said, I've always had those moments when I had sex with my wife. But he said, now I can go outside and see a caterpillar on a plant and have a moment like that. Which makes me think of one thing, Josh, which is I think as we get older, if we're lucky, we've gotten a little more skilled at 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 noticing those moments, maybe slowing down enough that that we allow ourselves. It's really hard to have moments like that if you're moving 80 miles an hour. And that's just as I said, most of mine occur in the natural world. Most of mine occur when I'm not in a hurry. In fact, all of mine occur when I'm not in a hurry. I've never had a moment when I was rushing around, you know. My brother calls it slowing down to the speed of wisdom. And he also said, the faster you move, the less you see. So being being slow, moving slowly, not being overscheduled, I think that's part of it too. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, I feel like the book is lots of these moments with like your life wrapped around them, sort of punctuating it. Yes, yes. Well, that's what the book is about. I mean, virtually every chapter is is an epiphany. Uh, and that's how I wanted to organize it because I don't think time is uh, anything all that linear. I mean, my experience of my life is it's blah, 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 being present, blah, 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 moment. Uh, and when I'm out with my friends, I'm present. When I'm sometimes just wandering around the house doing chores, or uh, I'll sort of be in what uh, Michael Pollan calls default mode rumination, default mode functioning. That's really not a kind of presence that I remember that anyone remembers. <laughs> but then there'll be a moment when I kind of snap too. And that's really when time happens for me. Yeah. Yeah, it is incredible how much time I know, at least for me, I spend planning or thinking or avoiding or whatever else uh on page 146 you talk about how your family uh didn't hug kiss or speak about emotions and that left a small repertoire of behavior to draw from i kind of i kind of wonder why why is it the case that it seems like as we move forward in time people are becoming more emotionally literate is there some 
force or culture is this just like the general progression of like human civilization like why why didn't they talk about their emotions as much before or maybe they did and now we're having a renaissance i'm i'm kind of curious about that well i actually wrote a whole book called another country on the difference between my generation and my parents generation and i compared uh, my parents' generation to Queen Elizabeth, very stoic, dutiful, uh, self-contained, um, unable to show or express much emotion, to Princess Diana, who just emoted all over the place and was extremely warm and, and psychologically minded and so on. And I think that I, I think the differences are generational, and they have they have to do primarily with how we were raised to behave. And um, even though my generation was not, my parents' generation uh, was raised to um, be well-behaved, to be loyal, to not complain, um, to be humble, extremely humble. My generation was was raised by that set of parents. Uh, And we also, I mean, I heard as a girl, um, you know, don't get swell-headed. Uh, and, and at our table, we didn't speak unless spoken to, as general rule. We were children. We were supposed to listen to the adults. But um, when we went to college is kind of when the whole psychology movement cracked open. And the music, uh, the, the kind of music Bob Dylan wrote, if you can compare that music to the kind of music that uh, Frank Sinatra wrote, if you compare the movies like The Graduate to South Pacific, you just see there was an enormous general change in how people looked at the world. And I was caught up in that. Um, I like that frame, Josh, because nobody's for blame for that. It's not personal. It's not um, pathological that people do things differently. It's generational. And I I really honestly don't know which is better. I mean, our generation seems to be uh, in some ways healthier than our parents, in some ways less healthy. Uh, My parents' generation, for example, was tended to stay married and um, uh, tended to be pretty stable in terms of their long-term lifestyles and relationships. Now, granted, some of those marriages weren't very happy. And so it's a complicated picture. Our generation uh, is raising children. I think that our um, uh, more able to express their emotions, more comfortable with emotions, and I think that's great. Um, the children now in the uh, generation that's gone through COVID, they're struggling. Uh, they're really struggling. So every generation has, I think, a different sort of patterning of how they deal with emotion and how they, how they frame their experiences. Yeah. So this is a question I I've asked a lot of guests because it continues to be very interesting to me. Um, on page 30, you talk about how, um, you'd been separated for a year from your mother, I think. And uh, you're right. I was convinced that it was my fault that I must have done something terribly wrong to deserve exile. Ever since, I've been fearful of making mistakes or being a bad girl. Um, it's amazing to me how it's almost as like a rule 
when something difficult happens to a child, they just seem to reach these conclusions, these self-defeating conclusions about themselves. Um, and maybe at some point I'll stop being interested in it and just accept the the commonly held explanation. But I wonder, I wonder what you think about that phenomena, and if you have a reason for why do you why you think children reach those those kinds of conclusions. Well, of course, one is they think adults are all knowing and and that adults are all wise and all powerful so that if something isn't going right they they uh they tend to i think feel that they're the little kid they're the one who screws up most of the time around the place uh, another thing though oddly is if you say as a child things are really going wrong here and it's my parents fault there's a sense in which you're more vulnerable because you have no control if it's not about you, you're just a helpless victim of whatever's going on with your parents. If if a child can make it about himself or herself, then they have some illusion of control. Well, if I'm a good enough girl, if I'm helpful enough, maybe things will go right for me later. So I think actually, in a funny way, it's a more empowering message to say, this was my fault. Mm than it is to say, this was my parents' fault, you know. The other thing is children have so little understanding of how adults, for example, I don't think my parents were getting along at all when my father came home from the war and within a month decided to take me and one of my brothers and live in a trailer in the Ozarks. Um, I don't think they were getting along. I think that's why I decided to go to the Ozarks. But that's not what we children were told. We children were told it was so my mother could focus on her studies um, in medical school. So I thought, I think what I really thought about that was um, if I were more lovable, she wouldn't have been able to let me go. Mm. A year is a very long time for a six-year-old to be away from her mother. And uh, it, it, did some, it did some damage. In fact, there's good research, Josh, that children who are separated from their parents, even in a very benevolent situation, like for example, they had to go into the hospital for a long period of time, or the mother or father had to go into the hospital, those children are much more likely to have high anxiety later in their lives than children whose parents have been with them throughout their childhood. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, you know, despite the fact that we have all these genes and all of these abilities that sort of just come from our ancestors for free childhood is such a vulnerable time of just enormous, you know, shaping of our, our intellects for the rest of our lives. Um, nurture is just like, it's not to be overlooked. You know, it's such an important part of our development. Well, a couple things about that. It's absolutely is uh, incredibly, and it's not just parents. It's friends, it's whether you're bullied or school, whether you're athletic, uh, whether you have a close friend in junior high, um, whether you have an extended family, whether you're in a good community, whether you have good teachers. I mean, there's so many shaping uh, elements in those first 20 years. And as a therapist, I think one of the things that was most interesting to me was seeing how these early family patterns, these early uh, roles we develop in a family um, stay with us 
And for example, they're very common. Uh, they stay with us in a way that gives us marital trouble later. Um, mm. That whatever it is that happened in our own family, we somehow, in spite of our deepest wishes, aren't, are unable to prevent coming into our current family. Yeah. You talk about after your mom passed, you write, when she was alive, she was often absent. And now that she's dead, she is often present. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think about my mother a lot. I had tremendous respect for her. And um, I I have such good memories of her and, and very clear memories of her. And I dream about her at night. And sometimes in the dreams, she's so real. It's It's really as if she's right there. And I'll even have some anxiety like, oh my gosh, my mom's alive and I've been ignoring her all these years because she'll be so present, you know. This reminds me of one thing I'd like to bring up, Josh, which is, as I mentioned, I, I worked really hard at being a likable person. And I've managed to, in my humble opinion, uh, stay pretty likable. In other words, I've had you know, my grandkids, my kids, we get along real well. Uh, I've had a lot of friends through the years. And one of the ways I'm conceptualizing my life now is the first six decades of my life, I spent building attachments. And uh, whether it was to my own children and later grandchildren, whether it was to my husband's a musician, to the musician community, to the mental health community in my town, to the uh, writing community the last um, 30 years. And uh, I love these attachments. I love living in embedded in so many relationships. But as I get older, uh, the new task for me is learning to detach from so many people. These, these lovely grandchildren are growing up and at one point, I was the most important person in their life. Now I'm very lucky if they um, manage the college ones, manage to text me once a month. And even the younger ones, they live in Canada now. So I've had to adjust the fact that children are no longer part of my life. I've got a brother right now who's very ill, and I'm, I'm struggling to deal with the fact that he may not be with me very long. I'm going to a lot of funerals these days. And uh, so one of the real important developmental tasks for older people is, is learning how to, I mean, we don't stop loving people, but the task is to be able to let people go without feeling uh, despairing and to still find joy. I mean, I give the example in Women Who Are North of walking out of the funeral and just really enjoying the, the song of the bird. And so it's that, that dance between acknowledging sorrow and on the other hand, uh, being present for what is left, being present for all that is left. Hmm. I think that's why gratitude is such a survival skill for older people, is quite a bit of loss occurs. And my concept of balance is we, we balance this, this loss and sorrow with, with joy and gratitude. That's what balance is. And so we find what we're looking for. 
And if we're looking for beauty, if we're looking for joy, if we're looking for things to be grateful for, we can find all those things and keep our lives pretty happy. You have a quote on page 288 about needing to relinquish your cows. I think oh, you're yeah. quoting a Buddhist yes. story. Do yeah. you want to remind yeah. us what that is about? Sure, sure. Um, and that might be a good place to end because it's such a perfect story uh, from my point of view. But there was a time during COVID when I was so lonely. Um, I, I couldn't see my family. Um, I couldn't see my friends. And I'm a real social person. I'm out and about in the community all the time. And um, it was just my husband and me in our house. Um, and um, so I'm in a Buddhist Sangha and this Sangha met online and I heard this story in the Sangha. So the Buddha is sitting with his followers and a farmer comes up and starts to, he's screaming, he's tearing at his hair and he's going, I've lost my cows, I've lost my cows. And he comes up to the Buddha group and he goes, have you seen my cows? Have you seen them? Have you seen my cows? And so Buddha looks to his followers. They all shrug, no, you know, we haven't seen your cows. And the Buddha, no, we haven't seen your cows. And the man walk, or runs off screaming, I am ruined, I am ruined, I have lost my cows. And the Buddha turns to the uh, disciples or the, the students and says, aren't, aren't you grateful you have no cows? Mm-hmm. And to me, that is really an important story because uh, the trick to enjoying life is not to hold on, to let everything go, let everything come in as it comes in, let everything go as it goes out. And to be able to, James Taylor said it very well, enjoy the passage of time without grasping, without holding on. Uh, so that story was, was very, very helpful to me that time Mm. well mary it's been a pleasure reading the book and talking to you today um is there anything you want to let audience members know any projects you're working on or things to look out for no the only thing i really want to say in response to an interview about this book josh it was so nice talking to you i really appreciated it um is just as i wrote about my life in light um you and everyone listening to you can think about their life that way too. I mean, most of us look back on our lives and they're, they're dappled leaves. They're as mixed as salt and pepper with joy and sorrow. But we have some choices in how we frame our lives in the narratives we tell ourselves. And we're a great deal happier if we can put together the story of our lives in light. Hmm. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you so much, Mary. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Goodbye.